1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Deborah Lindsay-Williams about her essay, You Like to Have Some Cup of Tea?, and other questions about complicity in place, Place, excuse me, which appeared in issue 20 of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Deborah Lindsay-Williams teaches in the Literature and Creative Writing Program at NYU Abu Dhabi. With Cyrus Patel, she is the co-editor of the Oxford History of the Novel in English, Volume 8, American Fiction Since 1940, for which she also wrote the chapter on children's literature. She is currently working on a book called The Necessity of YA Fiction, which will be part of the Oxford Literary Agendas series. She has published essays in various publications, including the New York Times, the Paris Review Daily, The Rumpus, Brevity, and Motherwell. Deborah Lindsay-Williams, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
1: So we always like to start off by sort of setting the scene. So would you tell us where you're calling from and and what it's like there?
0: Um, Yeah, I am actually in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital of the United Arab Emirates. Um, I am eight, sometimes nine hours ahead of the East Coast of the United States, so it's evening here. Um, Abu Dhabi is a big, bustling metropolitan city, um, but it is also a desert city surrounded by water. So it's a sort of city of contradictions. Um, Contrary to what people thought when I first moved here, I do not ride a camel to work. Um, (laughs) There is not gold in the streets. Um, If you saw the street I lived on, it looks like any medium-sized city anywhere, kind of tall buildings and a lot of traffic. And then there's water and mangrove swamps. And then if you drive about half an hour out of town, it's just big, huge, empty desert. It's a kind of fascinating place to live.
1: Absolutely. That was a beautiful description. Very (laughs) placey. I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first paragraph for us?
0: Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So this is called, it's the essay is called, you like to have some cup of tea and other questions about complicity and place. We need to do more mom my son tells me. He's 15, supports the Kurdish resistance, and fancies himself an an anarcho-socialist, which is not like being an anarchist, mom, okay, he tells me. The young socialist lives in a state of perpetual indignation about the state of the world. He insists that governments can and should do better, and that capitalism is the root of almost all problems, past, present, and future. He hopes for radical social change, but when I call him an idealist, he's furious. It's practical, that's all. Marx and Akshalan, their ideas would work if people weren't just so stupid and greedy. I usually tell the young socialist that because I'm a literature professor, my version of do more is of the teaching and writing sort rather than the man the barricade sort, which I know disappoints him. He says, we're all complicit, Mom. You're white and a professor, and there's no way to escape your own privilege, even if you're only white by accident.
1: Thank you for reading that. Would you explain what the piece is about or describe what the piece is about for our listeners who may not have read your essay yet? I think what you read is a perfect introduction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the essay came about... um, so I live in Abu Dhabi and one of the great things about Abu Dhabi is that it is literally about four or five hours from lots of amazing places that if I were to live, if I still lived in Boston or New York or DC and was a literature professor it would take, you know, 10 hours to get to, right? So, um, we do a lot of traveling here and I think a lot about what it means to be a traveler and we were planning or I was planning, um, My son, my older son was about to leave for college. So we were going to take our kind of last family trip, you know, it's going to be like a big trip, right? And I'd always wanted to go to South Africa. And so I figured I thought, okay, well, it's not that far from here. So we'll, we'll go there. And I started looking for hotels and so forth. And all of these ads were advertising like you know, colonial splendor or, you know, like the first settlers would have seen, or, you know, the, the, the language of colonialism was being sold as like a lifestyle choice without, you know, it was like attractive furniture and, you know, broad verandas with drinks, but it, and in the essay I talk about, you know, it was sort of the colonial light without any actual, you know, like, politics involved. It's sort of like the movie from a while back, um, out of Africa, where it was all just Meryl Streep and Robert Redford and a lot of like, linen garments lounging in the sunlight, you know. So I was thinking a lot about that, um, that, that, that marketing impulse and what it meant. And then my son saying, like, I can't believe we're going to go to South Africa, that's just this terrible place. How can we go there? You know, we're, we're participating in this in this dreadful history. And then thinking about living in Abu Dhabi. And when I talk to people in the States about where I live, they are always sure that this is the land of oppression. Um, and at the same time as I was having the, the uh, sort of planning this trip, I had my first ever internet troll. Um, who was like, oh, you you have a, you know, your Bangladeshi maid is you keep her in a closet and you've stolen her passport. And, you know, you live in a country with slaves. So, and it was just like, dude, you know, no, (laughs) that's not true. And so I started to think about what does it mean to live in a place where the government is not ideal, where there is injustice and inequity. And then I started to think about, well, how would any of us go anywhere really like where where do you go where there isn't this history what are our responsibilities as travelers as residents um, as quote unquote global citizens Um, and, and and sort of how do we what do we do with that what do we do with question of privilege right what do we do with the fact that I have an American passport and even in the world of Trump an American passport was it still gets you a lot of places, right? You can still move around with, with fairly free mobility. I mean, this was before, so I wrote this before COVID. So now we have to put all of that in brackets, right? Um, So, so it just, it started to kind of coalesce around these ideas of living in a place where people have a lot of preconceptions and traveling to a place and realizing that I have a lot of preconceptions and then what, how do those two things start to shed light on each other, I think. So that's sort of what the essay's about, I think, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and, and I think in the essay, you, you there's sort of parts of it that sort of look at Abu Dhabi and parts of it that look mm-hmm. at, you know, your actual trip to South Africa mm-hmm. and show us what's happening there and stuff.
0: Right, All right, right,
1: So. I've actually been to Abu Dhabi before, believe it or oh, not, Congratulations!
0: <laughs> um, right.
1: visiting some, some expat family. Mm-hmm. And I found the history there really fascinating, mm-hmm. just because so much has changed there in, in just a few decades, which which you definitely mentioned in your essay, how, how, how quickly things have, have developed there. Would you tell us just how, how you and your family ended up in Abu Dhabi and, and what you enjoy <laughs> about living there? Like what are the things you wish people knew
0: about living in Abu mm-hmm. Dhabi? Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a great question. So we moved here from Manhattan um, for a year, <laughs> and that was almost <laughs> ten years ago. So, wow, yeah, so it's a change in plans, uh, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, so, my husband and I are both professors, and um, my husband had been involved in the planning of NYU Abu Dhabi in the curriculum. Um, and the the story in our family is that the day that um, John McCain introduced Sarah Palin as, as his running mate. This is going back to 2008, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at my husband and said, "You know, we're going to need an exit strategy. Like <laughs> we, this, we might need to get out of here. You need to find out about that Abu Dhabi thing." And literally two days later, somebody said, "Hey, why don't you you to my husband? You should join the planning committee uh, on the curriculum for the humanities for Abu Dhabi." Um, So he started planning, and if you're an intellectual or an academic or somebody who just likes to imagine stuff, I mean, think about it. Somebody said, hey, you're gonna plan a new school. What what do you wanna do, right? It was like super exciting. There's gonna be this brand new place in this brand new part of the world that we didn't know. So that was really exciting um, to start a liberal arts university in a part of the world that was gonna allow the student body to come from everywhere in the world. Uh, so we moved here with two little kids. My, the, the young socialist was at the time um, not quite seven, so his politics had not yet emerged. Um, and uh, my older son was not, maybe 10. And it was the most exciting thing teaching here. Um, I literally, we have students from, I think, almost every inhabited country, In the world, we had our first student. Our first student. uh, This we had our first student from Fiji join this year. Uh, So to be in a class where everybody speaks English, and that is itself, of course, an issue, because what does it mean that we, the lingua franca, is is English. but to have a, a class of 20 people and nobody's from the same country and then start to talk about literature or ideas, or I teach a course called, uh, that's about monsters, for instance, and to think about differing views of monsters um, or about gender and gender representations. So it's just a really exciting place to teach. And living in Abu Dhabi, it is not a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination, but it is also a place. a little bit like New York, Um, I think about 80% of the population of Abu Dhabi comes from somewhere else. And it means having to always be aware of your own position in the world in a way that I think if you live in America, you don't necessarily have to do uh, on a literally like a daily basis. Um, And I find that very exciting. And it is also a place, exactly as you said, Emily, where things are changing even in the 10 years that I've lived here um, to think about on a very simple level. For instance, when I first moved here, I I bought a bicycle and I rode my bike around and people looked at me like I was a lunatic, like, because this is car culture. what are you doing on a bicycle? And also you're a Western lady and it's really hot. And why are you there? You know, like, are you okay? Are you stranded? Uh, Mm -hmm. And now there are bike lanes and there are people on bicycles and scooters Mm -hmm. and, you know, so things just, things change. And that is really exciting. And it is also a place where family is really important, where you can get out into nature. Um, although it's not, you know, mountains, it's not Western Massachusetts nature. And I miss the color green sometimes (laughs) so deeply that I, like it hurts. Um, but it is, um, it's exciting to feel a part of something even in a tiny way I mean I'm, I'm not important but of of a country that is trying to change itself and where there is there is a there's a kind of tolerance here. I mean, there there is injustice and inequity, absolutely. But there's also a kind of tolerance here that I find really remarkable and I haven't seen in a lot of other places. And I think that when I talk about that with people um, who've never been here or been to the Gulf, um, they're really surprised because the, the image of the Gulf states in particular and the Middle East, quote-unquote, uh, I think, in the Western imaginary is, you know, Veiled ladies and oil rigs, kind of abject workers and camels in the background, and then like the occasional jihadi sort of leaping around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so people are surprised that I can drive, that I can drink, that there are women in government, Mm -hmm. that I can go to a bar, that there's live music, that, um, you know, people go to the beach in very small bikinis, you know, and nobody, nobody looks twice at them. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people stare at them, but that's because it's a woman in a small bikini or a man (laughs) in a very small bikini, you know? So I think people are surprised by that. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's really interesting what you say, because I think, especially the last couple of years in America, like there's, I think in America, there's this sense of like wanting to go back to the way things were for, for, for some people, you know, like make America great again, like this Mm -hmm. idea of like, that our glory days are past. And I Mm -hmm. feel like, in Abu Dhabi, like you say, in in, in the Emirates in general, like the, everything is so forward looking mm-hmm. and so, like, um, really active and and self aware movements for change and mm-hmm. for and for development and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, sometimes that becomes a kind of grandizing, like, you know, this country is the best at fill in the blank. And sure. <laughs> And so that's a young, so the thing is, it's a, as my children like to point out, um, I am older than this country. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, that's super great. Charming. Um, you know, so they're going to, the country's going to celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. And that, wow. so to think about like that they have problems or that this doesn't work or that's not right or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you know, no. Okay. But God, like, just give them a minute you know like hang on um so that so it's exciting i think
1: yeah i also think um something that's so unique i think about the emirates is that um their sort of most privileged class are like the native Emiratis, mm-hmm. but they're actually like a, min- a minority of the population mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. you said by like a large margin i think mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. america that's just hard to imagine because in america being the majority is the privilege
0: right And and that's
1: not the case in Abu Dhabi. Right.
0: That's true. I think people are also really surprised that there's a huge population of um, South Asians who've been here for decades and have really helped build the country and is a really entrenched, some quite wealthy, some really entrenched middle class. Um, And it it forces us forces it has asked me living here has asked me to really think about ideas of privilege I think that we get caught in these ideas that privilege is like a monolithic structure mm-hmm. and it's not right so I have privilege in a sense because I'm white but I have a little less privilege because I'm a woman but I have less privilege because I'm I have some privilege because I'm an expat but I don't have privilege because I'm not emirati and it's you know so it, it it's a it's a shifting. It's a shifting ground in a sense. It's not, there, it's not absolute, I think, would be how I'd yeah. say that.
1: So at The Common, we're particularly focused on writing with, with a modern sense of place, I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of discussion in your essay about sort of the Western view of a place. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've just been discussing how Westerners think of the Gulf, these sort of like stereotyped ideas, and also how they think of South Africa. Would you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about sort of taking on those views in
0: this essay? Mm. That was one of the things, and I think I write about—I did write about this in the essay—is that I think there's a kind of um, a white American naivete in. It's related to a something a friend of mine said. A European friend of mine said years ago, which is uh, which is that only in America can you be considered well educated and only speak one language. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's deeply humiliating. Ouch. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, me and my faux French. Um, but you know, I sort of thought, all right, we're going to go to South Africa, and it's going to be really amazing. And I've really wanted I've wanted to go to this place for a long time. You know, and I've read Nadine Gordimer, and I, you know, I've read other writers, and and. And yet when I got there, we were in Cape Town, um, I was like, oh, look, the townships are still there. Oh, but apartheid's over. Oh, oh, you know, so we want to, so this idea that, well, the problem's been solved, right? Because apartheid is no longer the law of the land. So, oh, all fixed. And right. and to have to remember that I was allowed to think that in a sense because I don't live there. I hadn't been there. And because also much of the sort of, you know, American news is not super great on international reporting, right? Unless things are in disaster and then you get, you get that. Right. Um, So to have to think about my expectations of going to South Africa and that I was thinking about South Africa, maybe the way other people had been thinking about Abu Dhabi, right? Like, oh, well, I know this from the news or from this. So, okay. And what I saw in Cape town was a country or a, you know, a city in a country still really wrestling with these really ugly legacies and histories. And I hadn't really had to think about what it means to not be recovered Right? And, and to think then again about America and how long or maybe impossible it is to kind of quote-unquote recover um, from a history of institutionalized racism. Mm.
1: That's interesting. And I wonder, you know, like, what does it mean to, like, is it only okay, okay to visit places that have quote-unquote recovered? Or, mm-hmm. you know, as your son mm-hmm. sort of felt like there was like right. a, a moral dilemma and even right. going to see it. Yeah. Right.
0: But I think about that. So like, if you, if you think about that, you know we can only go to a place that's like quote unquote all better where would you go <laughs> oh God <laughs> I mean, you know like Bhutan yeah. but well you know Bhutan has had some problems yeah. um would you go to Antarctica well you could only go to Antarctica if you had a um, sort of immense financial wealth I mean right so uh, yeah again it I I think of my son thinks very much in absolutes and I um And I'm not sure that really works, right?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think the young have to give us their idealism so it can sort of push us in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But I don't think Mm -hmm. it can get you all the way there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your essay takes its title from a line in a novel by Nadine Mm -hmm. Gordimer, which imagines the collapse of apartheid in South Africa more than a decade before that actually happened. So she wrote it before the collapse. Right, right. And in the essay, there was a line you wrote that I loved. you said when Gordimer published July's people, it was speculative fiction, but now it's historical mm. and like all good historical fiction, it holds up a mirror in which we can see ourselves. Would you tell us more about incorporating this book in the essay and, and sort of seeing yourself in it a little bit?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, I read this book the first time. And I think I end the essay with this. I've read this book for the first time when I was probably a, a young teenager and, um, and it, ends with the central character, this woman, Maureen, running toward the sound of a helicopter and away from her children and her husband. And we don't know who's in the helicopter. So we don't know if she's going to die because there are um, South African revolutionaries uh, in the helicopter, Mm -hmm. or if she's going to be saved, which would mean that the revolution has failed and apartheid is still the law of the land, right? So it's a... It's a pretty shitty outcome, no matter what, no matter what's going to happen. Right. But it, but it ends in the middle. You know, she's running. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And I, so I, as a kid reading it, I didn't know you could end a book like that. Like, <laughs> where's you know, like where's the rest of the book? I didn't know that um, women could run away. So that was also I was like, oh, interesting. Huh. Hmm. And as a middle-aged white lady taking my family to this country, I started to think about, I mean, Maureen, the whole book, I think, is very much about that question of complicity and what we close our eyes to because it's inconvenient to open our eyes. And um, so it's. I've read this book a number of different times, and I teach it uh, pretty often as well. And it has been interesting to me to watch my perception of Maureen change over time. I, I actually, when I was younger, weirdly, I used to find her a lot more sympathetic, and now mm. <laughs> I find her deeply problematic. She wants to believe that her "quote unquote" houseboy, who's a man of probably somewhere between thirty and forty years old, is like her friend, and they like each mm-hmm. other. and And I read this now, and I'm like, oh my. God, no he doesn't like you. Or maybe he does, but you're his boss. What are you thinking? So, as a novel that f- it it shows us, I think, even though it was written in the early 80s, it it forces us to think about how change happens. And often when I teach it, I teach it in conjunction with Audrey Lorde's very short essay, very famous essay, do the master's tools dismantle the master's house, right? So how does change happen? Does it happen with revolution? Does it happen with, in the case of uh, Maureen and her husband, should they have left the country? Should they have taken the money out of the bank and moved? Should they have, you know, how do they affect change as people who are benefiting from this corrupt system? And that's a question. I don't have an answer, right? I don't know if any of us do, but we hope for change. We want for change. We agitate for change. We march and protest as we've seen in the United States this past summer. And then, and then what happens, you know, sometimes we don't know what happens. Change happens after, after we're dead, you know, or it happens for our children. And Maureen makes me think about those questions um, in ways that are not always, or almost never comfortable, I think, which is part of why I keep coming back to the book. The epigraph is um, from Gramsci's prison notebooks. Uh, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, there arises a great diversity of morbid symptoms. And I, that sense of being stuck, I think, is, is really powerful. Right. Because as we've seen in the Trump administration and the aftermath, right, people cling to the levers of power with every breath they've got. You know, their dying skeletal hands are clenched and and you got to pry those fingers off the levers of power. And how, how do you do that? You know, um, and I don't I don't have an answer to that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Why don't you? No, I, know, I, I understand. Um, I, I love that quote you read. I feel, it just feels, unfortunately, like very apt for this time yeah. period we're in no, right no. now. I think yeah, there's so, true. so much desire and motivation for change, and yet we're finding sort of the systems mm-hmm. and the and the, the privilege and the and the just the size of it sort of immovable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The part of your essay when your family is touring the island prison where Nelson Mandela was held is, mm-hmm. is really interesting to me the tour guides are all from former prisoners mm-hmm. who can who can talk with experience about the place and it raises some key questions in the piece uh, like what we get from visiting sites like yeah. that yeah and I would just love for you to talk more about those questions you know you raise some of them in your essay like does a place like this make us feel better since we know that you know apartheid fell and Mandela triumphed, or do do we feel uncomfortable sort of knowing that on a grander scale, the world's economic and political and racial systems, you know, victory and equality is is still so far away?
0: Right. Yeah. I think um, it was really interesting to be there and to watch the different responses of the at least white appearing people who were there and the people who were there, either the people, black people from South Africa, or there were people um, from other African countries as well, who we talked to a little bit. And it is a question. And there's a question here in, in Abu Dhabi about heritage also, and museums and quote unquote heritage sites, right? What are we, memorializing. What's it about? Um, in this country, it's particularly difficult because the Arab Peninsula was not inhabited. It was nomads, right? So there's nothing here. <laughs> it was just sand. Um, and how do you memorialize that? And in terms of Robben Island, it's an interesting thing to think about. One of the, Some of the people we talked about said that um, over time, the island itself as a historical site as a um, as a tourist destination as a pilgrimage site of some sort has changed a little bit because it was initially sort of only about Mandela, right And now it is a much more... Um, Uh, sort of longitudinal view about the originals or the indigenous people who were there and the history of settlement and about the leper colony and so forth. So they're trying, I think, to kind of open up the question of who, who gets commemorated, you know, who gets preserved, if you want to think about that, about it that way. Um, And I think the best museums or heritage sites are maybe those that on the one hand can offer us optimism, you know, yes, the good guys won in a sense, and also the work isn't done, right? So it's it's always this sense of both and, like, yes, this and this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just the good guys won, and it's not just that it's all terrible and awful and, and, and unceasing just, you know, awfulness that, that you can have both. Right. And that is a very uncomfortable position also. You know, we mm-hmm. want to just think like, yay, good guys won. Yay. And then, oh shit, not done. <laughs> right. So it's always that, that tension, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for that. You wrote this essay a, a long time before the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. and it, it came out in <laughs> fall 2020. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, summer summer of last year is, is when we started to have this very big public, wide-reaching mm-hmm. conversation about m- most of the issues in the essay about like oppressive racial and economic systems and privilege and complicity and what work we need to be doing and sort of, you know, are we doing that work? Is it too difficult emotionally for us to, to do that work? If you added an addendum or like a mm. postscript to this essay now, what would it be? Like, ha- has your son's thinking evolved? Has yours changed?
0: That is such a great question. I've been thinking about that um, a lot. Uh, my son's thinking. Well, he's only 16 now, so <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's evolved maybe a little bit. Um, I would add, I just read, um, I don't know if you've read any essays by, um, if you read the collection Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Oh, I've out.
1: heard so much about it.
0: <laughs> it is, it is, it's one of the best, it's just the essays are extraordinary they're awesome. extraordinary um and one in particular i was just reading with a class um earlier this week it's an essay called bad english and she talks about the trump administration and about uh, the after you know this, this the protests of of the of last summer and so forth and um i'm going to quote from it for a minute she's talking about um, the that non-whites are demanding reparative action and saying, you know, things have to change and things have to change. And she says, "the a side I'm quoting now. A side effect of this justified rage has been a stay in your lane politics in which artists and writers are asked to speak only from their personal ethnic experiences. Such a politics, she says, not only assumes racial identity is pure." while ignoring the messy lived realities in which racial groups overlap, it reduces racial identity to intellectual property. The soul, And then she goes on, the the soul of innovation thrives on cross-cultural inspiration. If we are restricted to our lanes, culture will die. And the essay goes on from there. But I think this idea of, and part of what, I'm still thinking about what I think Gordimer is asking us to think about and and maybe the best kind of travel can help us think about is the messiness of lived experience. And that if I were to think about a postscript to this essay, it would be to ask us all to be asking better questions about our own position, and to not be afraid of asking those questions um, when challenged. So that when somebody in your workplace says, "You know, this this is, you know, systemic racism. This is institutionalized racism," instead of saying, "No, really, it's not. We have an HR person. We have da 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 da,", da to say, "Okay, let's think about what the system is actually producing, because then that's what the system is doing." So we have to be willing to examine the systems that are producing these you know, histories and, and ongoing inequities and, um, and sort of disjunctions between sort of access and ability, not ability, uh, access to be able to perform and to succeed so that's part of. We have to be less afraid, I guess, is what I would want to try to think about adding to the essay that I wrote. I don't know if that answered your question.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for 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 being getting used to living in discomfort and mm-hmm. um, and embracing that as like a, a learning space and not like a punishing space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I love that quote that you read.
0: That was really, really yeah. The essay. Her a, essay is 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 it's brilliant it's just brilliant Wait, which essay did you say that was this is um the essay is called bad english and it's from okay. the book minor feelings right uh that's perfect and we can link to
1: it in the in the show oh, that'd notes. be great yeah so i know that you participated in our our sort of weekly rights program mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. for listeners who may not know is an online writing program that common runs twice a year sending out weekly writing prompts alongside yeah. advice and other things from, from editors and writers Mm-hmm. And, and our hope is that it will encourage new ways of thinking, but also just to, to establish a regular writing practice, like a commitment to
0: mm-hmm.
1: weekly writing or daily writing or whatever that is for you. I wonder if you would tell us what, what what your practice looks like. Do you have a set schedule or is it more about you know making space to, to sit down when inspiration strikes?
0: I tell my students um, in the writing classes I teach that the inspiration fairy is like in the Seychelles and she is not coming back. So, <laughs> so you're really yeah. out of luck if you're waiting for that, right? It's the Stephen King, you got to get your butt in the chair, right? Yeah. So part of why I have signed up for weekly writes actually is I didn't always do the prompts, but it was the reminder of, are you paying attention to your practice, are you? This is going to sound very like bad yoga teacher, but you know, like, are you honoring your practice? Um, are you finding an hour every morning, or if you're a person whose brain works after ten o'clock at night, you know, at ten o'clock at night, where, and and just saying, and this is the time when I am not going to do my email, and I am not going to write my spreadsheet reports, and I am not going to watch stupid TV or You know, so I do, I have been, um, I use the weekly rights, uh, that reminder has helped me and now I have a regular, um, I, I can't remember where I read about it. I, um, I tell me, so the book that I'm writing for Oxford is an academic book and I have told myself, you know, I have to spend at least two hours every day, period. That's it, mm-hmm. and it can be 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 30 minutes if but whatever it is before I go to sleep, I have to have ticked off that I've done 120 minutes. Sometimes it's like 90 minutes on, 20 minutes off, another 90 minutes. Um, but that's that's my that's my goal. I mostly hit it <laughs> most mostly. And what I find is with anything is that the more I write, the more, I write, the more the ideas are coming and connections are being made and I'll, I'm i finding sentences and I'm, I'm writing an, this academic book, but I'm also working on some fiction and an essay. And so the more you make the space for the generativity, the more the generativity shows up. So if you show up for your practice, your practice will show up for you, I guess is what I would say.
1: Yeah, I really love that. I think you know when I started writing, you know, writing has this like sort of romantic feeling to mm-hmm. it. Like you just sit down and the magic happens. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and mm-hmm.
1: you know, I do still want to think of it that way. But <laughs> but I think the truth is is what you're saying, which is that like it might be a little bit unromantic to have strict guidelines for yourself and like word count goals or or time goals or anything like that. But I but yeah, if you, if you make the space for it, like that is when the magic happens. It's not All like right. it. You know, right. it doesn't just have to be this totally organic thing.
0: No, I think, you know, it's sort of like, what is it, you know, you make your own luck, which I think is maybe a little bit bullshit, but <laughs> is is not entirely incorrect. So I don't, word count freaks me out. Um, mm-hmm. But if I can say time, you know, and I turn off my phone and I turn off my Wi-Fi and I, um, so if I, can, I can work with time. I can do X minutes or, you know, X total of minutes per day. So that's what I do.
1: That's great. Yeah, I I do time as well instead of word counts. Mm -hmm. And I also think um, this is less a problem now, but when I was first starting out, like um, treating it as this sort of like maybe even boring job you have, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if Mm -hmm. that's a little depressing, it it makes it less scary. Like it it has to be less perfect. It's just something you do.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And that's part of what I'm, I'm trying to do with my students is to just demystify it a little bit, right? It's practice and you sit down and you do it just like if you're a pianist you do scales and they're kind of boring and then and then you move on yeah
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So in preparing for our conversation, I I read about a novel that you're working on called The Corset in the Veil, and it sounds absolutely amazing. I cannot wait to read this book. Would you tell our listeners about it?
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. Um, So The Corset in the Veil is based on the life of Lady Hester Stanhope, um, who's a real life person, uh, who left England. about 1809, so think Jane Austen, think Napoleonic Wars, think Bridgerton, um, mm-hmm. and uh, she was a spinster. She was the daughter of the prime minister who had just died. She was very outspoken, and and a pauper. And so, being an aristocrat and a pauper is really crappy combination and she was old she was 29 so nobody <laughs> was gonna nobody was gonna marry her uh, so she left um, England uh, with her half-brother went to Gibraltar sort of like I came to Abu Dhabi for a year she went to Gibraltar for like a little respite and she never went back she fell in love with a man 12 years younger they traveled the Levant, uh for the rest of their lives she went to Egypt she was the first european woman to go to Palmyra which is out in the syrian desert which isis blew up a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um and so my book is uh, about her love affair and her travels and her desire to be taken seriously in a world where there was absolutely no room for female ambition outside of marrying well she never married the man she traveled with even though he wanted to marry her Um, and they went to Palmyra and in my imagination she gets involved with this Egyptian concubine and a plot to um, try to unify the tribes of the of the Arab of the of the desert uh, against European encroachments, sort of like Lawrence of Arabia, but a hundred years earlier. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that Mm -hmm. just sounds fantastic. Uh,
0: I I love Hester. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. yeah, She sounds like a lot of fun to spend time with. I
0: think she was probably in real life. I think she was probably crazy, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I, I think her quest to like find an outlet for her ambition and her intellect and her talent. um, She feels very, present to me um, yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah absolutely yeah you have to respect that
0: mm-hmm.
1: even if she might have been a lot to be around
0: <laughs> I think she was a lot of person she also, <laughs> dressed, as, she also dressed as an Arab man uh, for um, most of her life after there was a shipwreck she lost everything and then she um, dressed as a Bedouin wow <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. well I can't wait for your book <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you and me both Uh, One last question. We ask everyone, what else are you working on? What's next? What should we look for? Uh,
0: Yes. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, So I am working on this book for Oxford called the necessity of YA fiction, which is about the importance. I think that it's that YA is not just a light pastime. It's not just Harry Potter or Maze Runner or, or the Hunger Games, but it's actually the site of where some of the most important questions of the 21st century are being wrestled with about climate change, particularly about um, alienation, isolation, and um, the difficulty of living in a, of living with national boundaries. And then, whether we are actually past the need for nation states. So I'm working on that. And then I've also written um, a YA novel about a girl in New York who discovers she's a a descendant of the priestess Cassandra, the woman who was cursed by Apollo to know the truth and never be believed. Um, So I think Cassandra is a great vehicle for thinking about the struggle for women to find their voice and be taken seriously and be listened to. So both of those things.
1: Uh, that's a lot to be working on. <laughs> it's good you're getting your two hours in every day. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this yes. has been so great. Uh, Deborah Lindsay-Williams, thanks so much for joining us and, and making time for us. It's been great to talk with you.
0: Okay. Thank you, Emily, so much. It was a pleasure.
1: Listeners, you can read Deborah's essay and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.